Hi, I'm Jack. And I'm Noah, and welcome back to another episode of the Climate Vanguard Podcast. Today we're going to be discussing our call with the mammoth that we hinted at last episode, the great George Mambio. We're also going to be discussing our experience with a new youth-led climate movement called Youth Climate Swarm. So we've got a great episode lined up today. To get things started, perhaps we can explain to our listeners a bit more about what the Youth Climate Swarm is. The Youth Climate Swarm is a brand new movement in the UK. The movement has three core demands and fossil fuel investment in the UK insulate Britain, so insulate the homes of the United Kingdom, which is the poorest housing stock in all of Europe, least energy efficient that is. And the third demand is free transport. So three very, um, I'd say pertinent demands, which have been sort of the focus of recent climate action in the UK, at least over the last several months. And the tactics that this youth movement employ in particular are to block roads all across the UK at the same time. So have these sort of the reason it's called Youth Climate Swarm is to have these groups of young people moving around the UK at the same time on the same day, blocking roads for what is seven minutes at a time, and then moving on to another site and doing the same thing. And the intent of it is to cause huge disruption within the country at the same time as a way for young people to communicate these demands. And mind you, a lot of young people who actually don't even have the, um, the right to vote yet. So this is a real way of sort of political expression for young people. Just jumping into sort of the tactic, why? Why is the tactic of protest disrupting traffic? I think it's, it's, it's a useful tactic from a couple perspectives. I think that first, it certainly is a very easy way to cause disruption. I mean, we were standing in the road for seven minutes. There were only 10 of us at this action. And we were able to cause quite a large traffic jam and attract quite a lot of attention. And so you imagine if you can, this was Youth Climate Swarm's first protest. You imagine as the movement grows, as more young people are compelled to pursue similar types of action, the type of disruption you could cause nationwide and how accessible it is for young people to be able to engage in that type of disruption. And I I think more generally, you have to acknowledge that blocking traffic will piss people off inevitably because they're trying to get somewhere they don't want to be bothered by this. And that's exactly the issue, right? Is like, we need to make it so that people can no longer ignore the climate crisis. When we're standing in the road saying that we're facing climate breakdown and ecological collapse, and we only have a couple of years left to really take on this crisis urgently, they can't escape it. They have to look at it. And they might be angry in the moment, but the hope is when they go back home, they have a moment for reflection. It's that, it's that reflection. I think that's so essential. I think that's so true because I think it's just so, so easy in our modern day world to escape. There's so many ways to insulate ourselves and bury our heads in the sand that it's really, really important to have these moments where you can get through to people. A good point. No, that's a definitely, it's blocking traffic is a very effective way, I think, to sort of jolt people, you know? Yeah. And again, um, you have to look at history. All successful protest movements will inevitably disrupt it. And again, we have to remember this disruption of standing in the road for seven minutes is nowhere close to the disruption that's going to come from the destabilization of our planetary life support systems. Yeah, I think that's a really good description of why we think blocking traffic is an effective tactic of protest. Now, Noah, do you maybe want to provide our listeners with a little bit more detail about what happened at this protest this past Saturday? I think the event itself was pretty interesting. So first of all, we showed up. There were probably around like 10 people, I'd say. So we got to know each other a bit more. 
we did kind of a brief nonviolent direct action training in order to get everyone acquainted with what could happen. And then we kind of set off and walked up to Piccadilly Circus. And I think just to provide some context, uh, Piccadilly Circus is perhaps the most busy commercial intersection yeah. in London. It's London's equivalent of Times Time Square. Square. There are billboards up. It's a hotbed of like pedestrians, of cars driving through, of, of commerce. So it's a very, very popular place. Commerce. And we were there on <laughs> Saturday. So it was busy, right? And we, we, then we trudged up there. Interesting group. Everyone obviously really passionate about the climate crisis and feels so scared and motivated about the lack of action that they feel like they have to stand in the road in order to make people aware of the severity of what's happening. So we all went up to Piccadilly Circus and, and I think... The first one, right? We did three of these intervals of standing on the road. The first one was pretty jarring. I have to be completely honest with you. I came away from it pretty shook. Yeah. I mean, we weren't sure what we were getting into when we went to meet this group of people who we don't know, but we were really wanting to support this new youth movement, in large part because the youth climate scene in the UK is kind of surprisingly quiet. And so we were really interested and intrigued by these young people trying to build this youth movement around demands that we really agree with. And so we were really unsure about what we were getting into, I think. And as we sort of decided, Noah and I, we were like, okay, we'll do it. We'll stand in the road. Because some some of the group members decided they actually, they actually didn't want to be the ones standing in the road, but they were more comfortable speaking to the members of the general public doing outreach. Um, but Noah and I said, okay, we'll, we'll stand in the road. Like, we want to go for it. We came to support this. I think it's important when we're engaging in climate issues to be outside, to step outside of our comfort zones, always yeah. challenge ourselves. And so we were really keen to just support these young people and be part of them. The first interval, this first set of seven minutes of standing in the road, essentially what it looked like is when the crosswalk sign was green, we would walk onto the crosswalk. And then uh, maybe a minute later, the crosswalk sign goes red <laughs> and the, the stoplights go green for the cars, except for we remained in the, in the crosswalk with our signs and a megaphone telling people about why we were there. The first interval was really, really shocking because, I mean, we were pretty immediately met with quite a lot of honking and bypassers who weren't, weren't disrupted by our action, who were just walking by doing their shopping, kind of verbally abusing us, berating us with pretty obscene language, I'd say, really, really mean comments. And that's not totally unexpected. Not, I, I didn't fully know what to expect, but I think that that was certainly something I had entertained as a possibility that we could be angering people. And it wasn't only being berated with some non-PG words. It also got violent. In yeah. fact, one person came up to us and started kind of like banging the posters out of our hands. All of a sudden, the girl next to me dropped because I think she kind of got shoved. She got pushed over, yeah. And then one of the de-escalators got punched in the face. And you have to take a step back here. It's like young people feel so hopeless about the current situation about the threat of climate breakdown and ecological collapse, that they feel compelled to stand in the road. Nobody wants to be standing in the road on a Saturday afternoon. This is not something that young people want to do, but it feel, they feel like they have to do this. And the absolute vitriol and just e extreme reaction, this casual violence that was emanating from the crowd was just terrible. It was really shocking, I think. And we sort of came together as a group after this happened. After, I mean, we stood strong. We stayed till the end of our seven minutes, even after these sort of verbal and physical cases of abuse. We stayed in the road until the end of the seven minutes and kept our cool and then left. And I would give a huge shout out to all the young people who are in the road yeah. with us who were able to sort of keep their calm, keep their cool and remember why we were there. 
but we sort of came together as a group after there were some tears involved people were really upset and i would say including noah and i i mean i was physically shaking a little bit it sort of all happened quite quickly and it's certainly not what we expected our saturday afternoon to look like um getting assaulted in piccadilly circus but it was pretty incredible i mean we came together as a group sort of took stock decided i mean the plan was to carry on doing this many other times i sort of wasn't sure I, I was half expecting i think that the group would decide like okay that was enough yeah like i'm, I'm good we weren't expecting that that was quite a lot to take yeah. let's like try this again another time but to my surprise most people in the circle were like yeah i want to go again and i think when i saw that i mean when i saw people the sort of young people who were literally physically assaulted saying i want to go back I remember why I'm here. It's important to me to be here. And I also don't want that experience to be my lasting memory of this protest. And I don't want these people who have just assaulted us to win, essentially. Yeah, and by not going back in the road, we're allowing them to win. So I think that I took some strength from that. We ended up going back in the road for a second and third time. The second time was much, much better. Like a polar opposite reaction, I'd say, actually, from the crowd. A lot of clapping. Some really, really um, incredible women came and stood next to us in the road and sort of joined our line. The honking was much less, I would say, than the first time. I mean, the first time, it's hard to describe. Just constant honking for seven minutes. And I can't tell you how long seven minutes feels when there are people in your face yelling at you, berating you, when there's a line of traffic constantly honking. And there's only, mind you, like maybe seven or eight of us in the road. And it's incredible how vulnerable you feel. With hundreds of people on the side yeah. looking at you, sort of gawking, taking yeah. pictures. A lot of people laughing at you, making jokes about you. And it was raining on us. It was literally raining. Like the scene could not have been more uh, kind of dreary from our perspective. Yeah. But the second time certainly gave us hope. It was a very, very different reception from the crowd. So I'd say overall that was a really positive reaction. And then I'd finally say that the third was probably a mixed reaction. Um, some people clapping. Some people saying, carry on, you guys are doing great work. Other people in the crowd, I mean, there's a woman, a sort of couple in the crowd who are, I was standing on the edge of the line for the third time. There's a couple who were just like in my face, sort of making jokes and yelling at me and trying to sort of taunt me for seven minutes. And it was just really shocking. I mean, to think that they were young people talking about climate. I mean, it couldn't be less of a controversial issue. And to get that type of reaction from people who weren't even affected by our protest, mind you, they were not in the cars. They were people who were walking, doing their shopping, who were so disturbed by us speaking out for stronger climate action in this country that they felt compelled to stand there for seven minutes and just berate us. So I would say overall, I don't know, do you want to summarize some of the feelings that you got, Noah, from this experience? Yeah. So I think it's actually one of the rare instances where I didn't come away from a certain action feeling really empowered. For sure. I actually felt quite degraded. I felt really shook. If the general public cannot even accept young people disrupting traffic for seven minutes, how are we ever going to actually prepare for climate breakdown? The disruption that brings. So yeah, it was a jarring experience. I would do it again because I think it's really important to not give up and to have courage and be brave and stick up for what you believe in. Because Jack and I, as well as all those other young people, feel that this is an existential threat that's not being addressed. The society is sleepwalking into kind of a collective suicide, if I'm honest. And I just think that it's unfortunate that that was the reaction. But again, we can't be discouraged because if you look at other past social movements that were successful, whether that was the suffragettes, whether that was anti-colonial resistance, whether that was a civil rights movement, you're going to get abuse for standing up for what is right. 
So you cannot, like you said, let those people win. So yeah, I, I mean, as as Noah and I have each been involved in various forms of protests before, this was certainly the least empowering of those experiences. I wouldn't say that protest is ever something that's fun, but often you can come away with a sense of, I don't know. It feels good. Yeah, the solidarity with other people. Yeah. It's not what I would ever choose to spend my afternoon doing in an ideal world, but this felt the worst of all the all the protest experiences. I mean, it was really, you feel incredibly vulnerable. I, you come away feeling really degraded. Um, I also think it's because we were just a small group of people as well. Yeah, for sure. There were so many eyes on us. Like, like I've never been involved in something like that where there was literally 10 of us causing this huge disruption. Yeah. And there's no, there's no hiding behind anyone else. Like yeah. it's you. It's, you're standing there with seven other people on either side of you. And there's there's no mistaking who's responsible for but the protest. Shout out Youth Climate Swarm. If you're interested, they're on Instagram. Go yeah, you should check out. them out. And their sort of next action in London will be in mid-January. January. I think Noah and I will plan to attend. Um, so if any Vanguardians want to come out and support us, please. Yeah, any young people. You don't have to stand on the road. You can just uh, do outreach. That's incredibly helpful and cool to see young people sort of engaging with the general public. Um, One of the most fascinating elements, actually, because for the second I was doing outreach yeah. and de-escalating. And just to hear people, like their views on the climate crisis, their views on this type of protest, it's really interesting. Because, again, like we've painted this picture of the general public just assaulting us, which did happen. But there are people in the crowd who are kind of just standing there and like, what is happening? And once you talk to those people and to kind of understand what their thinking is on the climate crisis, how they view it you know what type of things need to happen what type of actions need to happen it's really interesting to get that glimpse yeah i think it's super important to engage in that sort of civil discussion and debate and debate with people because i think that we actually find that i mean i've done outreach before as well and you find that most people are actually in support of climate action and often in support of climate protest yeah and it's unfortunate there are some people that really spoil that but it's important to remember i think for us included that most people are on our side yeah and it's about how do you get those people to join, actually, and not just be a bystander, but yeah. join the type of social movement. You, you can't let the people who feel compelled to assault you verbally and physically to win, because while they do definitely taint your perspective, they are still in the minority. And you kind of have to draw on that collective strength of knowing that people are actually behind you, whether they are in Piccadilly Circus or whatever the disruption is, whether they be at home, they are behind you and they believe that we need to wake up and really take on this threat urgently yeah and i'd say one final note is that as disturbing and shocking and uh, sort of not empowering as this protest felt it's certainly better than spending our saturday afternoon watching netflix on the couch i mean you come away from it feeling like you've done something you've stood up for what you believe in you've at least caused people to go home and think about climate um it's certainly a better feeling than not doing anything at all so I'd say that's our sort of final takeaway from this action. I think that speaking about civil disobedience, the climate movement in the UK leads us pretty well into discussing our conversation with George Mombio. I repeat, George Mombio. For people who don't know who George Mombio is. Let's talk a little bit about who, who is George who Mombio, is George? why is he so important, and why were we so fucking excited to have this conversation with. Who is the great George Monbiot? So George Monbiot is primarily a writer and journalist who's been covering environmental issues for decades. 
He's been a columnist at The Guardian, so that might be one of the main areas where he saw him. He's also written a lot of books. And I would say that George Monbiot is basically the leading figure of the environmental movement in the UK. Anybody who knows about climate change, who's interested in climate change, especially in more radical climate action, knows of George Monbiot because he has been leading this conversation for so long. And that's why Jack and I respect him. It's partially because he's been here, right? He's been here, he's been saying this forever. And for a while, nobody was listening to him. He's basically banging his head against the table until you had Greta come about and Fridays for Future and Extinction Rebellion. Yeah, I think that on top of his sort of status as the king of climate in the UK, I think it's really important to note that he's an incredibly, incredibly effective climate communicator. Yeah. I mean, he's risen to this position because he's talked about these issues for so long and he's so, so good at talking about climate change and communicating the root causes of the climate of climate breakdown. And so I'd really encourage any of our listeners, if they haven't yet, to go look up a video of George Monbiot speaking or look up his columns in The Guardian. And he's an incredible writer and orator and just general communicator. So I'd really encourage any of our listeners to actually go check out some of his yeah. work. So that's a little bit about George. And then I guess how do we actually get to discuss with him Climate Vanguard? So Back in October, we started reaching out to some of these thinkers that we really admire and respect, and that included Andreas Mom, who we talked about in the other episode. That included George Monbiot as well. We didn't really expect George to get back to us because apparently he gets over 200 emails every day. And while he says that he reads every email, he cannot respond to all emails. And especially, he usually doesn't respond about general advice, which is what we were seeking. So I was so absolutely thrilled when I got an email in my inbox in November, late November, from George's assistant saying, George saw your email and he'd be very keen to talk to you and kind of figure out what this kind of Vanguard project is and how he can help. And I was so ecstatic. And I texted Jack and he was like, holy shit, George got back to us. And Jack was like, Wait, who, who's George? I was like, George Mondio. And there was this, it was such an extreme validation. Yeah, I couldn't even believe it. When you said George. George, I didn't know what George you were talking about because it sure as hell couldn't have been George Mambia. No, I was like, no, George Mambia. <laughs> so what, what happened in the call? What, what did we discuss? What was his general, what were we trying to get out of the call? And what was his feedback? What, what did he Yeah, so I us? think really the call began by just saying hello and we, then we presented Climate Vanguard. And George absolutely loved it. He immediately said, this is so great. This is exactly what we need. And in fact, he said, it's rare that somebody comes to him with something that is different as well as something that is needed. So he was just, that was a massive endorsement right off the bat. I mean, I think that's all we aim to be is to be both new and to be needed. We don't want to add noise to this conversation. We want to bring something fresh and we want to actually affect change. So to have George Mambio tell us that he sees us that way and that's what pushed him to take a call with us and discuss this with us was really, really incredible. We were actually kind of blown away by that. And at the end of the call, sort of mentioned that we were somewhat inspiring to him. You know, we provided some hope to him. I mean, it's difficult to communicate how amazing that is for us to hear. Yeah. Someone who is that very thing for us, you know, who yeah. inspired us to pursue Climate Vanguard amazing. to then tell us that we are inspiring to him. I mean, it's hard to, for us still, I think, to wrap our heads around that. I think in general, the call went really well. First of all, I thought we pitched it quite well. We spoke with confidence and you know, while we were starstruck in a certain sense they were talking to George, we also understood that this is still, you know, maintained a professional approach and that this is, you know, serious stuff that we're talking about. So yeah. all in all that went well. And then just his positive encouragement was amazing. And also like his feedback was so interesting. For example, we mentioned a lot climate breakdown and ecological collapse. 
but George was quite adamant that we should reframe that as outputs of our planetary life support systems being eroded, right? It's about these natural boundaries that we're crossing. So we have to have more of a holistic sense and nest those impacts within the greater ecological umbrella. Mm, yeah, I think that was such great feedback from him because I think that it's something that we've always been conscious of. We never wanted Climate Vanguard to only be something that addresses climate in an isolated manner. We definitely have to acknowledge that climate is embedded within a larger complex system that is our entire ecology. And addressing climate as an isolated issue will only lead us to develop solutions that further degrade other parts of our life support systems, which are equally important. So I think that that was really interesting feedback from George. Overall, though, it was such a positive conversation and a validating conversation for us. I think on this podcast, we talk a lot about what's going well, but there's a lot. we have to acknowledge that for Noah and I, building this organization is totally new. And for a lot of it, we really feel like we're out on thin ice. We're sort of feeling around in the dark, trying to figure things out. We're not sure if we're headed down the right path all the time. And so I think to get this sort of validation from someone that has inspired us to actually pursue this path and somebody that we just find to be an incredible actor in the climate space was so amazing. And not to mention, he capped off the call by sort of saying that he really would be interested in continuing to stay in touch with us, to have a relationship with us, and that he would endorse us publicly once we launch and potentially use some of our policy outputs in some of his writing. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't really wow. get much better than that for us. We were just um, like dumbfounded when you said yeah. that. Yeah. Well, I was just like looking at you and I was like, I, I didn't even know what to say. I was like, thank you so much, George. Yeah. <laughs> we just sort of thanked him, left the call, and then immediately called each other like, and oh started God. screaming. Um, like, it was it was amazing. And just for folks out there also, we had some other really interesting conversations this past week, including with Clover Hogan, who is a well-known climate activist and the founder of Force of Nature. And a lot of her work focuses on eco-anxiety and the intersection between mental health and climate change. And she is, you know, as a young person who started a successful organization. So like even getting that nitty gritty advice about how do you register in the UK? How do you build a team? How do you empower volunteers? That was a really helpful call. And I think she actually was quite keen on Climate Vanguard. She really saw the value in it. Yeah, I think she challenged us on certain points. Um, and she's someone who is literally our age, who's been running this organization now for three years. So she's somewhere, someone who's doing what we hope to be doing for the next few years. Um, so it was really, I think, insightful to be able to talk to her and just hear about her experience of running an organization as a young person, doing this for the first time. Um, and she runs a very successful organization. And although the content of what they do and what we do is slightly different, yeah. I think that it was invaluable to be able to just speak to her and hear about her sort of practical experience of how she got from where, where we are now to where she is now. Yeah. And that, that was really helpful. And I think another call we had that was great as well, actually, looking back on it, was with Lori Labor Langton, who is a well-known climate thinker. He works at the Institute for Public Policy Research. He's also a fellow at the Chatham House. He recently came out with a book which was called something like a, a manifesto for an age of environmental breakdown. It's on Verso books, so check it out. So he kind of allies, allies himself with this radical ethos that what Conor Vanguard is also promoting. And he had so much helpful advice about our theory of change, what types of solutions we should be focusing on. He also introduces the idea of like ratcheting up the conversation. So beginning with solutions that nobody can really disagree with. Like it just makes sense, like, you know, using public money to spur on green innovation or using modern monetary theory. 
concept we can dive into in another podcast <laughs> in order to fund a lot of these climate initiatives, as well as how do we balance his approach of working outside of the system, uh, working outside the system, pushing it, antagonizing it, as well as perhaps finding some ways to work within the system. Yeah, I think that was a really interesting part of our conversation with him to talk about how do we navigate working outside of the system and also working inside the system. I mean, we're trying to reject a lot of the things that are being discussed within the system right now. And we're trying to work with people who exist outside of the systems, marginalized people, people who actually have the knowledge we need. But we realize that we can't just reject these spaces where power lies, particularly given the urgency of climate yes, breakdown. Yes. I think we have to somehow find ways to both be working within and without Exactly. I think that's something we've always been acknowledging, right? Given the time scale, like we have 10 years, really, is what the science tells us to cut our emissions by 45% in order to limit warming to 1.5 degrees, which already seems very suspect. In order to attain that goal, we're going to have to work within the system. If you choose to somehow step out of the system and say, oh, we need to abolish capitalism, we need to abolish this system we live in, which I think ultimately we have to do that. I think it, but if, if you step back and say, I'm not going to engage with the system, is a form of denial, I think, because we have to work within the system. We, we just have to, we have to find ways to work within the system to promote certain solutions that are actionable and radical right now, but are also transcendent towards a long-term post-capitalist future. And these solutions are at our disposal. It just requires the political will and the collective leadership to attain them. Yeah. So I think Laurie provided some really interesting insight to us. Um, regarding how do we do that? How do we straddle that line? How yeah. do we at the one time support those existing leaders who are at the forefront of climate action doing the best that our world has to offer currently yeah. while also pointing out the antagonisms of the system that they are fighting for at the same time. Exactly. And uh, I think it's actually something that Clover mentioned as well. She said, are there pockets of change right now in society where you see the change that you want happening? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We have to somehow latch onto these positives as well because we don't want to paint a super bleak picture, which, I mean, the science is telling us is, it's extremely urgent. It's bordering on catastrophic. But there are changes happening, albeit very small and diminutive, that are still encouraging and something that we can latch onto and perhaps inflate and build power behind. Yeah, I think that's really well put. I think that just about wraps up this week's episode. We'll be back in two weeks' time for the fifth episode of the Climate Vanguard podcast.